0: Welcome to Parenting Bites. This is Rebecca Levy. I'm here today with Amy Oztan of Amy Ever After. Hi. Hello. And Andrea Smith, technology guru extraordinaire. Hello. Hello. Today on the show, we have a special guest, Tabitha St. Bernard Jacobs. She is an award-winning organizer, activist, artist, and director of community engagement for the Women's March. She is joining us today to talk about how to raise anti-racist children Something I think a lot of us have been thinking about and talking about these past few weeks, um, hopefully. So we're going to have Tabitha on the show to talk about an incredible article she wrote in Romper just about this and a lot more about her work with the Women's March and how we can raise activist children and why it's important to raise activist children and be active yourself. So we'll be right back with Tabitha St. Bernard Jacobs. We are back with our guest, Tabitha St. Bernard Jacobs. She is an award-winning organizer, activist, artist, and director of community engagement for the Women's March. In addition to being a mom of two, that is a lot, (laughs) Tabitha. (laughs) You have a lot on your plate.
1: Yeah, my kids are five and nine months, and we were thinking about it, and she spent a good chunk of her entire life. My daughter these nine months in some form of quarantine, being super isolated from, from everybody. So it's just, it's a very surreal time. I'm, it's crazy all the time over here, but it's, it's special, you know?
0: It's actually amazing because you, you must be really like homeschooling your five-year-old as much as you can homeschool five like make up for kindergarten that is such a hard age I'm so in awe of the moms of young kids doing that
1: (laughs) it is because he needs that one-on-one attention it's not like kids who are older, where you can say he has an assignment, go do it. He needs you to sit and explain it to him. And he's somebody who's always been very, very independent. And since we've been been in isolation, he has become like super attached to me, which is beautiful. It's great. I get hugs all the time, but it's also like, I can't use the bathroom by myself (laughs) anymore. (laughs) So it's a whole other life.
0: So it's really amazing to me that you're able to balance that in some way with all of the things you're doing. And I think especially over, um, you know, these last few weeks with when we went from sort of just pandemic and quarantining to now a whole new movement, um, re And you were able to somehow write this incredible article, <laughs> um, you know, helping white women basically understand, and dads, I shouldn't just say moms, white parents, um, understand how to raise actively anti-racist children, not what people like to say, which is like colorblind or, you know, all the things everyone always used to use as their catchphrases, but actively anti-racist. And you wrote this fantastic article in Romper, um, and I'd like to talk to you a little about you know, how this came out of you and how I can't even discuss how you had the time to write such an incredibly in-depth article. Um, But where this came from, and you know, why you felt the need to write this?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a really painful time for me. Um, Whenever someone who looks like me gets murdered by police, and the videos start, Circulating the internet, that's like fresh trauma for Black people because we have to relive it every time, um, and it's and it's just it's it's just the realization of a deep fear that we live with for ourselves and also for our loved ones, and as it kind of hit the public consciousness around the same time as the Amy Cooper incident, um, I started getting like emails and texts from my white mom friends who had questions about what do we do in this moment, um, and I just wanted to say like it's not just this moment. There have been people who have been fighting for so long to really dismantle racist systems in our country and who have been really fighting to to break down these systems not just in public ways, not just in like a manifestation of a murder of a black man, but in homes, schools and workplaces around the country. Um, and you know it's it's these systems that we're talking about and many white folks are just really unaware of that because they've never had to face racism in their lives. So I wanted to write it from my heart, and just focus on on the type of ways that that complicity shows up in the many facets of life that we show up in and how white parents can work to really ensure that their kids don't grow up to be like Amy Cooper, that they're not raising white people who would casually just put their knee on the neck of a black man for for over eight minutes, Um, that they're not raising kids who say that, like like what you said, that they don't see color and think that that's a good thing. Um, We really want to raise kids who will fight to create a country where equity and justice is the core of the life that we all live. I was in conversation with Paris Hatcher from Black Feminist Future a few days ago, and she said something that really struck me she said we're not just fighting to live and not be killed we're fighting for the right to thrive and succeed and live full beautiful lives and that's what it's really about and i wanted to speak that into existence for myself for my brother my sister my friends my loved ones and i just wanted people that were reaching out to me i want i wanted them to like join in this fight with me and fight for the future of all of our kids you know and and if folks are waking up for the first first time like that's completely fine but know that there's a lot of education that they need to sort of put themselves through to know how can I like how can they show up as white people in ways that are productive in ways that actually help to dismantle um, certain systems that they really benefit from.
0: One of the things I thought was so um, interesting about your article and different from other things I had been reading was you you weren't just like, read these books. Um, there was a real questioning of looking at the life you live as a white person and looking around you and saying, how many black friends do I have? How many black people live in my neighborhood? How many black friends do my children have? Um, somebody asked the other day, when was the first time you had a black teacher? Uh-huh. Um, the fact that people had to stop and think. <laughs> Mm -hmm. about that, um, I think was really powerful to people who had never questioned what systemic racism looks like every day in their life, because they just feel like they're not racist. Mm -hmm. Um, What, you know, what has been your response? What have you seen as the response to the questions you asked in this article?
1: It's been a much better response than I expected. I wrote it from a very, raw, vulnerable space. And I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to tell my truth as a black parent. Um, But I know that a lot of white people may not be ready to hear the full truth about how they are actually complicit in systems just by being white. And that there's a need, if you're white, to fight actively to be anti racist and to not just be happy to say that you're not racist. Um, so, when I started getting responses on social media and via email from people who were like, Thank you so much for writing that. You know, it was really hard for me to read. I was uncomfortable reading it, but it made me think really, really, really critically about how I'm showing up in this world with my white skin. And the type of places that I'm raising my kids and the type of ways that I'm raising them to show up in this world as well. Because I really think, and it's something that I mentioned in the article, is that it's not just about raising kids to grow up to be anti-racist people. There are ways that children even now can fight racism in their own schools. You know, we look at the statistics um, where we talk about black black kids being being punished at higher rates in schools than white kids, and we talk about the fact that Black moms are dying at a higher rate than white moms during childbirth and right after. So we know that white kids are born with a sense of privilege um, and really teaching them from as young as possible. We know that kids start noticing race from as young as age two. And if you're not having conversations about race with your kids, they're learning. They're learning from what's around them. So you might as well lean into this and really help them have an educated view of racism where they're not causing harm to to the kids and the people around them.
2: You know, it's really interesting because um, my son grew, he was born and he grew up in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, New York, and went to school in a very, very diverse neighborhood. And all his friends were all different, black, brown, white. Um, And then we moved to a suburb of New Jersey when he was in about fourth grade. And he came home the first day and he said, why is there only one black boy in my class? Mm -hmm. And he noticed it right away. And he befriended, they became very good friends. And in high school, when they would go out together, when they got their learner's permits and, and, uh, you know, underage driver's licenses, um, We had to tell him to be careful because he was going to get pulled over because he was with his friend who was black and that it was just, you know, that's just the way it is. And you have to make sure you're calm and respectful. And, you know, we really had to have that conversation a few times that when he was with this particular kid and not the other kids, he might be treated differently simply because that kid was black. And it was really eye opening for him and for his friends.
1: Yeah, and also thinking about if this is his experience as the white person with the black kid, what is the experience like for the black person Mm. who, for, for, for black kids who are just venturing out into the world and who have to deal with the fact that for them, police are not safe? And I think a lot of white parents are used to telling their kids listen, if you get in trouble, if you get lost, you should seek out a police officer. But for black parents, we can't tell our kids that because that could be the end of their lives. And that's a reality that we have to live with.
2: And that's so scary. And then how do you make kids, you know, how do you make that white kid understand the the fear and the ever-present danger that Black kids feel?
1: Yeah, I think it's about... Starting from young to have these conversations and also modeling this type of behavior as well. You know, I've spoken to parents in the last week who are like, "I don't want to talk to my kids about what's going on. I don't want to scare them." But this is the reality of the world that we live in right now. And black parents don't have that privilege. We have to have these conversations with our with our kids from a very young age. So you're actually choosing to keep your kid in a in a in a in a very falsely innocence space by not having conversations about race not talking about race openly with them not also modeling for them what it looks like to be an anti-racist family as a whole are you taking them to protest are you talking about racism around them are you talking to, to them about articles that they're reading about things that are coming up in the news about how things might be playing out in their schools in regards to how the administration is treating black kids maybe differently from white kids and these are all conversations that we need to be having with kids from a young age and there are tons of resources out there Um, that are age appropriate. So folks can go online and they, and they can search. There's tons of resources from organizations like Moms Rising and so forth, where they really break down how you can make this age appropriate for kids in a way that they can understand in a way that doesn't scare them. And in a way that helps them realize that they have a responsibility as they're walking around with white skin in this world to spend that privilege.
0: You know, how do you, One of the hard things I think people have had to navigate, particularly in the last three, four years, um, is maybe they didn't know how racist their family members were or people in their community were. And then this last election sort of illuminated that in a whole new way of realizing who in your circle voted for Donald Trump Who in your circle continues to defend Donald Trump? Um, And also, and not just Donald Trump, but all of those mechanisms that are in place. And we're seeing it obviously on social media and you'll see people like, I'm unfriending this one. I'm, you know, they'll talk about that. But Uh it's it's not helpful, I think, to just unfriend. Um, I don't think everyone should get into it on social media. I think that just becomes a rabbit hole of insanity. But
1: Uh
0: it is, how can you talk to your kids about these things. Also, when their own family members or their grandparents or, you know, people like that are holding views um, that are contrary to everything you're trying to teach your children.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's a really good question. I think it starts from home. I think teaching anti-racism starts from home. And I think that when you teach your kids certain values within your sort of immediate family, then when they notice stuff around them, when that uncle says something really problematic or says the N-word, they notice and they and, and, and you can also empower them to speak up for themselves as well, because kids, you know, as I mentioned before, kids start noticing race from a very young age. They they notice a whole lot more than we give them credit for. And they have the ability to stand up to two things around them that aren't aren't the way they should be. But, yeah, I mean, it's a reckoning for sure. And there are people who have certainly been doing the hard work of how can we bridge those gaps? How can we have those conversations with these family members? And it's about not being quiet, not not saying, you know, I just wanna have a nice Thanksgiving dinner. Let's not talk about politics. Let's not get into it. That in itself is a privilege to be able to say that politics do not impact your life because for so many people in this country, they have no choice but to get involved in politics because the types of decisions and policies that are coming down from this administration are drastically impacting our everyday lives. So so that's, that's, I think the first step is not shying away from that conversation and not, not keeping it as something that is super segmented from just a, being a part of the family, just leading into that discomfort. You know, it, some of these conversations are really difficult to have and will make people feel uncomfortable. And I would even go so far as to say that if you as a white person are having these conversations and are trying to be anti-racist, and if you're not uncomfortable, then you're not digging deep enough. So, so it's really important to really unpack and, re, and re-examine the ways in which that we we are complicit, that white people are really complicit in in many areas of their lives, but also starting from home and shying away from these conversations. So
0: one of the things that stuck with me, I don't know, maybe it was three or four years ago, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones did this incredible piece on the desegregation attempts in Brooklyn. Um, between some of the elementary schools and the meetings that were being held, the public meetings. And one of the things she said, I think it was it was during the last election, maybe even before the primary, was how shocking it was, and I guess this is in line with Amy Cooper, how many of the white parents wearing their Bernie buttons <laughs> mm. were screaming and yelling about this desegregation plan that would send their kids to what they would call an unsafe school. That was sort of uh-huh. the euphemism they used. Um, And how, you know, she heard worse things at that meeting in, you know, supposedly hipster Brooklyn, whatever you want to call it, liberal Brooklyn, um, than she heard at meetings like this in Alabama. Uh. How like that other trap of people assuming that they're enlightened or they donate to the right causes um, and and having kids who feel that way, because I see that a lot um, with kids who just assume that they're doing the right thing. Um, and then you see the Amy Coopers where they're very aware of how they can weaponize um, their whiteness. How do we also confront that? And, you know, it's easier maybe to sometimes to confront your Trump voting <laughs> relative mm. yeah, um, yeah. Than, it, than it is this sort of insidious um, racism.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like if somebody is using the N-word around me, I know where they stand and I can choose to stay away from them. I can clearly identify that they're racist. What really worries me is the people who um, who would proclaim themselves to be liberal but are are upholding systems that really marginalize black and brown people and that really, really keep things in place that will... will will really seek to segregate their white kids so that they have better opportunities than black kids. The, that, those are the people that, re, that really worry me. And I think that that's, that's really, that was really the crux of my article. Um, I know that Trump supporters are not reading my article and having <laughs> some sort of enlightening moments. Like my article was really for white liberal parents who, who, you're totally right, will donate to the Bernie campaign and who... Um, who voted for for Obama, but who really need to deeply re-examine the ways in which that they are complicit. And it starts with the type of school. I mean, these words like safe and unsafe are so closely tied to the number of kids who are black and brown in the school, the number of kids of color in the school, the place where the school is, the types of resources the school has, um, the, the how, how active the PTA is. So it's all closely tied, a lot of very coded language. And the point of my article was to really ask people to unpack that within themselves. And as I said, in the article, the points that I laid out, it wasn't meant to be a checklist. You know, it wasn't meant to be like, okay, I get five out of 10 or I get eight (laughs) out of 10 and I'm doing super good. And I get an anti-racist button. It's meant to be a way to really start to unpack how, how have, have I been really complicit in a system that that is not anti-racist because, We know that in this moment, you know, there's a video circulating of there are many videos circulating right now of um, of cops doing really atrocious things to to protesters being very violent. There's so many videos out there of black people being murdered, being killed, being hurt by white people, by white white police officers. and that's kind of like when it's right in front of us and we can see it and it's clear and we can fight that. But it's but that's not where it starts. You know, I said in the article, it doesn't start with with a white cop with his knee on the neck of a Black man, it starts way before that. It starts with the types of messages that we teach children in schools and in homes. It starts with the type of practices that we have in our homes. It starts with the way that you stand up in the workplace where people say things around you where they may not think that that it's a big deal because because there are no Black people around. What are you doing in that moment to stand up? And I think that if one, one thing that I really wanted white people to learn from that article is that it's not enough to just not be racist. That if you are not actively anti-racist in your life, you are complicit. You are complicit to a system of racism. So it's it's about getting involved, getting active, and committing to that continuously and committing to learning and growing and becoming an anti-racist ally.
2: So I, I wanna ask you about the whole white privilege thing. I Uh I think that there's a lot of tone-deaf people out there who think that they're anti-racism, but completely unaware of the fact that there's white privilege. And when you talk about teaching kids and talking to them and leaning into that conversation and having those tough talks, how do you create awareness among adults that there is indeed white privilege that needs to be changed
1: I think it's the understanding that, you know, as I mentioned before, when you look at the statistics around the number of black women who die in childbirth or right after childbirth and you really look at that number and you and you compare it to white moms, white privilege really starts even before birth. So that's something that white people have whether they choose to accept it, whether they choose to acknowledge it, whether they choose to talk about it or not, and it impacts many different areas. It it it, it really impacts um, socially, you know, economically, in so many areas of life: schools, workplaces, job interviews, every facet of life. It really impacts, and it's really about the fact that we live in a country that. Was That is based on whiteness. Whiteness is seen as the norm and everything else is seen as the other. You know, when when you look at the media, when you look at when you look at advertising, when you look at social media, there are people who um, who their entire lives are just centered around Whiteness. They don't have any black people in their lives. They don't follow any black influences on social media. Their their news outlets are mostly from white sources. So just it it's a whole system that they need to understand when they try to understand white privilege. And I think it's a hard thing for people, for white people particularly, to have to grapple with because especially for people who um who struggle socioeconomically, they're like, well, I'm struggling. I don't have a lot of money. Where's my privilege? But when you Compare a white person in that same sort of position with a black person in the same position. You see that the opportunities that the white person has is much more than than what the black person has. So it's understanding that it's a part of a bigger system that's at play that this country was built upon.
0: I love so one of the things you um, obviously talk about. One of the things you founded was this youth empower initiative within Uh the Women's March, Um, and. There's obviously a lot of similarity <laughs> between, you know, the systemic racism and then systemic misogyny in our society, which is then compounded, obviously, if you're a woman of color, if you're a black woman, um, just exponentially compounded. But that um, that feeling of needing to dismantle these systems <laughs> and question where you're getting your sources from. And I think for a lot of white women, Trump's election and the women's march was maybe the first time that they questioned the media, where they how they were perceiving things, how you know information was being given to them, how the election was covered, how, you know, you saw a lot of people, especially white women, having a reckoning for the first time of they knew they were experiencing sexism, but how deep it went, how ingrained it went. Um, when you're working with young people, are you seeing that they're just more aware because of social media? Because maybe they do have more diverse social media feeds. Um, you know, even the LGBTQ community, like they're they're exposed to so many more different viewpoints. Hopefully, um, are you seeing with young people that it's just a little easier to get them to see these processes that are in place and to want to stand up against them?
1: I mean, I think. Working with young people is so inspiring for me. They're so fearless and they're bold and they're courageous and they're also impatient for change. And I see that as actually a really good thing. And I think that Women's March is a movement that you're absolutely right. We have attracted a lot of white women who really had never felt like there was a problem in the country before 2016 and that also means that we have a, a lot of young white women who want to be a part of the movement but the thing about working with young people is that they're much more open to learning and growing they're living in a world where um, they're learning about gender as a spectrum and when they're learning a, a whole lot more about what's on social media there's more access to to different influences of 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 color black influences and so forth so it's definitely a, di- a different experience working with young people. Um, they want to dismantle the systems and, you know, they're less attached to these systems because they they see that these systems don't work and they are ready to risk it all to rebuild the type of liberation that we really all deserve. And that's why at Women's March, we seek to really educate them. And we're getting to do that this summer. We're kicking off the Feminist Futures Summer School, where we'll be delving into issues that really impact folks. And teaching young people actionable steps to stay engaged and active. And I think as adults, sort of like the most impactful thing that we can do is support young people and help them gain the skills that they need to do the work that needs to be done. I mean, I'm a parent of two small kids and I see myself as a role model for the, for them. We take our kids to protest, we take them to planning meetings. And my son is five and he's like a little bored by some of it sometimes. Like he doesn't <laughs> want to sit through like a full meeting talking about permits sometimes. But the more we do it is the more that we normalize activism, for our kids from a super young age. And I, and I teach him and I encourage white parents to also teach their kids that this is just what you do when you want to demand change. You get up and you make it happen for yourself. Like you want a better society, you have to fight for it. And I think that this generation, they, they really get that. And they really see that they have the power within their own hands to, to have a voice for themselves. We have social media where they can get get online and they and they can make a statement about where they really stand about certain things. And we're seeing we're seeing that I, I saw an article yesterday where um, where I think it was on TikTok. Kids were actually confronting their parents about about like their mm-hmm. own approaches to to what they're seeing about George Floyd and the protests and so forth. And that for me is just such a beautiful thing because these kids are so courageous and they're they're fearless and it's beautiful.
0: I feel the same way. I'm so hopeful about this generation. Um, And I think they're somehow they've grown up in many ways um, with marching now being the norm.
1: (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I think Black Lives Matter is it seven years now, six, seven years Um, Mm -hmm. that that really kicked off, I think, a a rebirth of of marching for what's important. Um, And so thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for um, the Women's March, and please, like, we are obviously following you, but we want to stay in touch and have you on again, and hopefully um, there'll be progress <laughs> that we can yeah. discuss, and not just biting. But thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. We will be right back with our Bites of the Week.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by KiwiCo., KiwiCo is this really cool subscription box service for kids and it's all about learning at home but making it fun. It's science and art. We love KiwiCrate. My niece got one. Andrea, I know your granddaughter got one.
2: Yes, she did. She and her sisters loved playing with it.
0: It's so cute. It's something they can do on their own. Each box is different. Your child gets a super cool hands-on science and art project delivered to their door every month. I mean, what kid doesn't love to get mail? KiwiCo is redefining play with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, critical thinking skills. And we all know your camps were probably canceled (laughs) this summer. So give yourself the gift of a project that comes right to your child. You don't have to do anything. You can get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com parenting. That's k-i-w-i-c-o dot com slash parenting. Try it now. We are back with our Bites of the Week. Amy, what do you have?
3: So I have something that I'm actually surprised we haven't mentioned yet. Um, And I think the reason we haven't mentioned it is that their marketing just sucked ass. Um, (laughs) Oh, God. And I'm talking about Quibi, the new streaming service. Oh, yeah. And there was apparently a 90-day free trial, which I missed because, like I said, marketing sucked. Um, now you can get a 14-day trial. And I think if you're on T-Mobile, you can maybe still get the 90 days. I'm not sure. If you're on T-Mobile, you can get something special. Um, But, you know, I decided to check it out because at, at first I was like, whatever. I'm not even watching the shows that I like right now. I don't have time for a new service. But then I heard that all the shows were super short. They're all like 10 minutes or under. So I decided to check it out and I downloaded it and I started my free trial and I just started looking through the things that they were recommending for me and it, those all sucked like I watched <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know what middle-aged white lady shows <laughs> seriously like the first one that I watched was um called Chrissy's Court which stars Chrissy Teigen and I love Chrissy Teigen on Twitter so I was like oh this is gonna be great I love the people's court didn't like it at all um then I tried Murder House Flip which is like part ghost show part HGTV renovation <laughs> show it was awful um so i was ready to give up but i was like hold on let me move out of the stuff they're recommending for me and i just started scrolling through and seeing what there was and i discovered some great shows like they forget what they're telling you to watch look through everything else like there's this show called Dishmantled, which stars titus burgess um you know from unbreakable kimmy yes. schmidt and it's this crazy cooking show Where, like, they have two chefs dressed in protective gear and goggles and everything, and they literally explode an entree all over them. And then they have 30 minutes to, like, you know, taste the food off their faces and their clothes and recreate it. (laughs) <laughs> like figure out what it is. Oh my god. And there's like a rotating panel of guests, celebrity hosts with Titus Burgess who are all hilarious. And the entire episode is five minutes. So like it's just like five minutes of funny and crazy and cooking. And then whoever makes the dish closest to what was exploded all over them wins five thousand dollars. <laughs> um There's another show called The Game Show, G-A-Y-M-E. It's hosted by two gay guys, and on each episode, two straight people team up with two, like, celebrity people, and they compete to see which team knows more about gay culture. Hilarious. Um, there's a show called The Shape of Pasta, where this chef travels all over Italy, like just learning how to make all these really obscure pastas. So like if you've watched Pasta Grannies, which I know we've talked about on the show, um, you know, like you, you see all these nonas making types of pasta that are only made in their little village in Italy. It's, it's kind of like that. And it's gorgeous. And you actually learn real techniques. And like, I just want to make all of the pastas that I've seen so far. Um, so there is good stuff. Ignore ignore the stuff that they say you should watch ignore the ones that everybody's talking about But would you pay for it after your trials over? That's the question. I don't know it's going to after my trial I think it's five dollars if you'll five dollars a month with ads and eight dollars a month without and I think what's gonna Decide it for me because you know in that two weeks the shows are ten minutes long I can watch all of the shows that are out (laughs) for all the ones that I like um, but what I haven't delved into yet and what's gonna decide it for me are the scripted shows um they they have like dramas and comedies starring people like Idris Elba and Liam Hemsworth and Queen Latifah and Anna Kendrick and Sophie Turner and like like big name stars and big We've name poured directors so much
0: money into this service it's yes. kind of crazy
3: and which makes me wonder why they didn't pour more into letting people know about it and letting people know about the different shows well so, they blamed the
2: pandemic yeah they, they actually did. blamed but the pandemic. but it was pandemic. actually
0: just kind of a colossal flop no I'm sorry yeah,
2: the pandemic it was so big at CES that it's all anybody yeah. was talking and about it's, but it got the biggest
0: names behind it I actually think people just didn't really like it maybe because people had the experience you had initially um, and then didn't take the time to dive deeper they kind of got what they were fed and they
2: were like no nah, you right. don't need this right maybe they didn't poke into it I could very easily have
3: stopped after watching like two and a half episodes and been like okay this is stupid and I never would have watched anything else so yeah they've got to change something and I, I don't know I f- I feel like the pandemic. Would have made it more likely that people would want to watch this because people have, you know, like there are all those jokes about people getting to the end of Netflix. Yeah. Um, I wonder but, if people have content fatigue. Well, but on the other hand, like I could also see these would be perfect for like watching on the subway, you know, <laughs> like right. a 10 minute episode. Right.
2: No I mean, one's they're designed that for that. <laughs> right. They're designed for your commute. They're designed for 10 minutes while you're waiting for the bus. That's right. why they're short. And or like so- waiting in
3: line at a store.
2: Yes, exactly. So no one's doing that.
3: Yeah, we'll see if it lasts. It's but it's I I honestly think it's kind of cool. And the neat thing is that you can turn your phone horizontally, or you can turn it vertically, and it still looks good. Like it's shot and edited in such a way that it makes sense either way. And it still fills up the whole screen. No, that's good. So it's like it's it's made for your phone. So I don't know, I, I, they did gamble a lot of money on it so i feel like they're not going to give up on it easily and i am excited to watch some of the scripted shows and see how they are so i'll report back on those
2: all right let us know let us know andrea what do you have all right well so you're watching your cooking shows guys don't fall over but (laughs) i have been cooking i've been using a really cool new kitchen tool called the Braun multi-quick seven and yes. it's basically um actually this is part of um what amy and i talked about last week the demo that we had with Braun and delonghi and um this is a device they sent and i was like oh my god what am i gonna do with this i have no idea how to do it it's basically um a stick is what I would call it. Stick it's, a, blender. it's a hand blender. Yes, it's a, hand, a stick blender. Thank you. Um, and it comes with a, you know, a chopping bowl, a work bowl, and it comes with a whisk attachment, it comes with the puree thing and chopping things. But I made whipped cream. <laughs> I mean, I actually made whipped cream. And I know you guys cook a lot. I had never made whipped cream and was marveling at the fact that with this stick blender in my hand, I could do it. And what's really cool about it is there's a, instead of an on off button, it's a squeeze. And the harder you squeeze, the higher the speed. So you really can very easily adjust the speed. It didn't splatter all over my kitchen. It didn't splatter all over me. (laughs) And we went through the the process of making that and then um, using a puree accessory and then using a chopping accessory and just you know, maybe that's why you watch cooking shows because for me it was just that this hands-on of seeing how it's actually done made me think, wait a minute, I could do this. I could get butternut squash. I could make soup out of this, yeah. and and start to think of the different things that I could make. So it's the Braun MultiQuick Seven stick blender, immersion blender, whatever you call it. I love it, and uh, we'll see what I make.
3: And I I have to say because I got the same one, um, it's like my third or fourth stick blender. And it really is so different and so much better than any of the ones that I've owned in the past. And the one I own now and I'm going to get rid of. Um, (laughs) Well, for one thing, what you were saying, you can adjust it so easily. Like all the other ones that I've had, it it has like a low button and a high button and nothing in between. And you have to switch between them. Um, But also you can push down on it. And it lowers the blade even lower into the food. So you can like pulse the blade up and down while you're pureeing, which just makes it work so much better. It's I love it. I've used it. I think I've had it for four days and I've used it like five times.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Send me recipes. I will. The other thing I really like is how easy it is. So when I use my hand mixer with the two whisks, it's so hard to push and eject those whisks yeah. this just has these two buttons on the shaft of the um stick and it just it just depresses and whatever you've attached to it just comes off it's so easy
3: yeah it's really easy to put all the different attachments off and on i love it just make sure you unplug mm. it you ever seen those oh my videos? god!
0: yeah it's like the note it's like one of the number one kitchen accidents
3: where it's... people try to lick whatever is on it when it's on, still oh, yeah. In. Yeah, yeah or oh, any or just to remove no.
0: it yeah just don't always unplug yeah always <laughs> okay Okay, I will. I promise. Okay, same recipes. Okay. Um, So my bite this week is a restaurant review (laughs) on Instagram. This dad reviewed his daughter's restaurant. She's, I think she's two. (laughs) Maybe she's two and a half. She's like the cutest thing you've ever seen. It's her play restaurant in her play kitchen. So it's called Ava's Kitchen. (laughs) And he literally wrote the most serious review of the, play, of the play restaurant. It's the sweetest thing ever with the picture of him. And he's a big guy. And he's at the little tiny, like, white little plastic, you know, play table. Um, and she is the cutest thing. But it's so funny. He's like... I've been waiting on my order for 45 minutes. I'm the only <laughs> customer here. She was making good progress. Then she stopped for 20 minutes to watch Paw Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> It is so cute and I guess he keeps following up on Instagram like he's like I'm not going to give up you know let's not give up on a black business just after one mistake. <laughs> oh that's so cute. And it went totally viral and then he put the update on and it's the cutest thing where he said like it's really picking up like it went viral and now she has a line down the block and it's all <laughs> of her stuffed animals lined oh up <laughs> to get into the restaurant. <laughs> it's again she wears this little chef hat. I Are mean, they six feet apart. <laughs> There's no social distancing. This <laughs> stuff to animals can't get it. Just cats. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> um, it is just like the sweetest thing. That I don't know. With adorable. Father's Day coming up? It's also so cute. It's just like it's so cute. And if I love that it's gone viral. It's like everybody just wants something like happy right now. Yeah. Um, so we'll check it out. There's actually a really good article about it on today.com and then we'll link directly to his to his Instagram. I think he's gained like a bazillion followers. I think <laughs> I think she might have her own Instagram now. I don't know. But it's just so I don't know. I just remember those days of doing play kitchen um with my girls. It's such a sweet part of I don't know, childhood, that like play food and play kitchen. And there was
3: this this little thing in the playground near our house where I don't know when it happened, but I'm sure like, you know, all these years later, it's still the same there. It's like this little window from inside that looks out and the children of the neighborhood just collectively decided that it was an ice cream shop (laughs) and like every single kid who plays there it's always an ice cream shop and the people on the outside are the customers and the people on the inside underneath <laughs> the slide are the, the people working the shop and it's like the sweetest thing it's so
0: good it's just like
3: i don't know i don't
0: a restaurant is like the most fascinating <laughs> pretend play for yep. some reason it is. but i guess you get to do all these things that adults don't ever let you do yeah. right like sell things, make things, cook on a kitchen stove,
3: you know? Eat stuff it's, you're not supposed to eat even if it's exactly. pretend.
1: Exactly.
0: And like you're doing the serving. I don't know. It's just so sweet. But anyway, that is our show for today. You can find links to everything we talked about at parentingbites.com and on facebook.com slash parentingbites where you can leave us suggestions, comments, whatever you want. Please rate, review, subscribe and share wherever you are listening to this podcast. Until next week, be healthy and safe. Happy parenting.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, this is our Parenting bites disclaimer. Everything we talk about on the show is our own opinion. Any products we recommend, it's our own personal recommendation for entertainment purposes only. If you buy something through our affiliate links or you just happen to buy or see or read or watch something that we've recommended, it's at your own risk.